Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today, imagine being able to watch a new planet be born. Scientists have observed a planet about nine times the mass of Jupiter. At a remarkably early stage of formation, what will it help us learn? Only 14 months after a rollover crash that left him with such severe injuries, there were fears he would lose a leg. Tiger Woods stepped back onto golf's greatest stage today, teeing off at the Masters, where he is a five-time winner. We talk about yet another Tiger comeback, his most ambitious yet, perhaps. But first, we take an in-depth look at measures in the federal budget to tackle the problem of housing affordability. Will it work? And we explore co-ownership, one option some potential home buyers are turning to, teaming up to make a purchase possible. Well, affordability and housing are big pillars in this liberal budget. To look at the political calculation behind it, Stuart Press, a lecturer in political science at Simon Fraser University, joins me now. Welcome. Oh, thanks for having me on. I guess it's no surprise that this budget has uh, is, is really focusing on housing and affordability in general, because as you've pointed out recently, this has become a, a real a real vulnerability for this government, I think. Yeah, I think there's there's a substantial uh, substantive reason reason to focus on it, and there's also a political reason to focus on it. Clearly, with the way in which uh, home prices and and rental uh, prices are, are skyrocketing around the country, there's there's a real need there to to respond. And and provincial governments, which normally have the responsibility for for housing as as a sector of the economy, are not uh, so far not able to 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 respond to that challenge effectively. And uh, and politically, we see that uh, conservative leadership uh, uh, hopefuls, particularly. Pierre Polyev, really targeting affordability in general and, and making uh, housing a core part of their, their pitch to Canadians that this government has not been able to address their, their affordability concerns. And, and so the Liberals really have had to find a way to respond to those charges. When you look at, at their ability, though, to affect any kind of meaningful change, it feels like this is a market that's very hard to get a grasp of, regardless of what level of government you're at. Absolutely. And part of the problem is, of course, that multi-jurisdictional uh, issue there. The fact that to, to build new housing in Canada requires the cooperation of, of at least three levels of government. You've got the uh, the municipalities who are responsible for most zoning uh, regulations. That power is delegated by the provinces, but they're doing so under the uh, the structures put in place by provincial governments. And provincial governments are going to to regulate the, the broader contours of, of the, the housing uh, industry. But then uh, on top of that, when we, whenever we need uh, additional funding, and we certainly do for things like social housing in the country, or if we're trying to do things like uh, uh, whole, uh, put up barriers to, to foreign investment in the, the housing uh, market in Canada, then we're going to need the federal government to step in as well. And so we have this three-cornered uh, dance between these different levels of government. And then on top of that, we still have to actually get things built on the ground in specific neighborhoods. And that is uh, often a significant challenge unto itself. And so so uh, this is a thorny problem. It is a problem that is a, a, a long time in the making. And, and so I don't think any one thing that any one level of government can do right now is going to turn things around on a dime. When you look at some of the measures that the Liberals have introduced in this budget, um, one some of them are, seem like good fiscal ideas or policy ideas. There's certainly political ideas in there, too. What do you make of this, this proposed uh, ban on foreign buyers? I think it's a nod towards the the perception in in Canadian uh, uh, media and in, in among Canadians who are trying to get into the the, the housing market that uh, the 
the idea of housing as a commodity has really taken hold. And there's a real concern that we're seeing people use it as an investment, including people who are not located in the country. And I think if we were to look at the the overall sources of uh, inflation and housing prices in Canada, um, foreign uh, ownership for people who are not based in the country at all is going to be a small portion of, of the driver, but it is one piece of, of that puzzle. And so uh, the fact that it is something uh, substantial that the governments can do right now it's a way to to try to demonstrate a, a vigor of action. There's there's a problem when we extend uh, that kind of, of thinking too far out. It can start to create barriers between Canada and, and the world with regard to to migration and movement of capital and, and so on. So I think there are there are some risks if we start to look purely at the the, the role that um, external actors are, are playing in the, the housing industry when a lot of the demand is created by Canadians either trying to enter the market for the first time or trying to upgrade or, or trying to create uh, investment opportunities for themselves against the backdrop of really limited supply in housing where vacancy rates continue to be uh, very low historically in places like Vancouver. So that formula is going to have prices continue to mount and uh, limiting or, or uh, putting a ban on, on foreign uh, ownership and buying for two years may, may put a, a small dent in that, but it's not going to be a, a, a one-shot solution. So politically speaking, then, where do you see the vulnerabilities for this government? Who are they vulnerable with? I think you pointed out that it's it's specifically with younger generations who may be really feeling the, the affordability crunch and really looking to governments not just to speak progressively, but to, to do things, actually, and that they can be. Um, there can be a lure to others, such as a Pierre Polyev, who come out and sound and speak passionately about affordability issues, regardless of what their proposed solutions may be. Right. And it's kind of counterintuitive. We tend to think of younger voters as being more on the progressive end of the spectrum. So if uh, there was a danger to the Liberals and losing some of the, the younger voters in the country, it would be to, to the NDP, you would think. But the, the problem here is that on an issue like housing, uh, if, if a government is seen to be completely in, unable to respond to a challenge that is uh, raising to the level of crisis for uh, some Canadians, and, and particularly among young, younger Canadians who are are hoping to join in uh, uh, the uh, into the housing market and become owners at some po- uh, point and are simply despairing of ever being able to do so, even if they tend to be on the progressive end of the spectrum in a lot of ways, if, if you can't afford uh, shelter, if you just, uh, you're seeing that this government is unable to respond to your needs in that regard, it may be enough to look for other solutions. And if you hear a, a loud and, and very blunt voice and from a, a different perspective saying that the government's got it all wrong and, and what we need to liberalize things radically, uh, and this is the kind of pitch that Pierre Polyev is making, you might stop and, and, and listen to it, uh, even if uh, in other ways you would have been skeptical of that pitch. It's just the crisis is so much and, and the government's ability to respond seems so compromised that you're willing to turn to a more, say, populist option. It does feel like, and it's, it's, it's strange to say this, but through COVID, um, that the liberals were caught off guard by, by this affordability crunch to some extent, that, that the scope of it has caught them off guard. And what we're seeing now is this sort of attempt to try to catch up. Yeah, I think so. I think a lot of people were caught off guard by the idea that in the midst of the pandemic, that the housing markets across the country would, would just skyrocket. There was a, a, an expectation, perhaps, that the the economy would be uh, uh, reduced by by the pandemic, and we did see that, and that people would rein in their spending. <coughs> Excuse me. But uh, if anything, we saw quite the opposite. So those who were at home had very little to spend money on, suddenly had additional resources to to get involved in the housing market, and it unleashed this pent up demand instead. And so I think that caught a a lot of people off guard. But of course, it's building on a situation that was already in place. It's not like 
prices were uh, uh, stable or, or declining in the years prior to, to the pandemic, we just saw an acceleration of a process that was already underway. And, and it's clear that the, the federal government is trying to play catch up now by making this a, a housing budget, making that the, the top line takeaway of what the new spending is in this budget. And, and in other ways, it is uh, quite a limited document compared to recent uh, pandemic budgets. We don't see a lot of new spending, but the spending that is there, a lot of it is focused primarily on dealing with, with this challenge. So does it go far enough? Does it, or does it go far enough to change anything? I think it will make some differences on on the margins. I think it will try to incentivize municipalities to to be a little more progressive in their approach, or a little more aggressive, I should say, in their approach to, to new housing, and to perhaps loosening up the zoning regulations and finding opportunities to to increase the number of, of new units being built, both both in terms of affordable housing and and also market based uh, housing, but. I don't think that any one government has a lever, lever they can pull to, to simply fix this problem. It is a, a multi-jurisdictional issue. It is a result of a relative uh, lack of spending on things like social housing over the last 30 years or so. And so it's going to take a great deal of time to try to uh, address the, that, that prolonged gap, that prolonged sh- shortfall. And so it's going, to, it's going to make a difference, but it's not going to be transformative. Stuart Prest, thank you so much for your time tonight. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Would you buy a house with someone who wasn't uh, a mate, like a romantic partner? Um, you know, sort of I, when I think of roommates, I, you know, I had roommates, obviously, in, in university, younger, older, lots of people have. Uh, I was thinking like Oscar and Felix or Bert and Ernie. Uh, and the roommates that I had through my college years and so on, I, I can't really imagine taking that kind of commitment with them, like buying a house, for instance, it would have been far too much for, uh, for me at a, as, at a younger age. Uh, but you know, times have changed, Rent. I was also living in Montreal and rent was like $400 a month. So obviously life was pretty easy back then. Um, things have changed. And so what people's attitudes towards things such as co-ownership, because it's one way to get onto the property ladder. So according to a national public opinion survey conducted by Abacus earlier this year, uh, commissioned by the real estate tech company Key, 88% of people who don't own a home now agree with the statement, given the housing market in Canada, I feel shut out of my dream of owning a home. So as more and more Canadians feel shut out, more and more are looking for solutions. And co-ownership is one that's becoming more appealing. When asked if co-ownership should be incorporated as a strategy to make apartments and new housing complexes more affordable. 68% agreed. Um, and 93% of renters said the co-ownership concept appealed to them, with half saying it was very appealing. Someone who knows a lot about this is my next guest, Leslie Gaynor. She's a real estate agent with Forest Hill Downtown Real Estate in Toronto and owner of GoCo Solutions, a company dedicated to helping people get into co-owned homes. Leslie Gaynor, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks so much for having me. So tell me a bit about this because I've been reading about it. Um, I don't know anyone personally who's done it, but it seemed to certainly be gaining traction in places where getting on the property ladder is increasingly difficult. Yeah, I think the most important piece is to actually define what co-ownership is because True. it means different things to many different people. So the the way that I look at co-ownership is uh, by taking groups of people or, indiv- you know, three, four, five, six people who say, look, alone I can't do anything. But with a group of people, I have a much better uh, buying power. I've got a bigger down payment because we know that $200,000 is necessary for anything over a million So when you combine and leverage your assets, you can, in fact, 
purchase more than what you could do as an individual. Even just a couple on their own can often not purchase as much as if you put two couples together. You've got four incomes. You've got all of the down payment. So I look at it as an approach to buying real estate. The way you structure the home can be as wide and as, you know, as many people can define that. You can live more like roommates, like you said when you did the introduction, or you can have separate units and live in separate units like you do individually, yeah. I mean, back in the 70s, my parents actually, I lived in Montreal. It was one of those triplex, those famous Montreal triplexes, mm-hmm. which are three mm-hmm. individual apartments in each. Yeah. And they were one of the first people to buy that as a co-op. They got in with two other right. families and each bought a floor. And that hadn't really been done in the past. They were normally rentals or sold as one building, but they had got in and bought it as three separate units because it was more affordable, obviously, to buy one than buy the whole thing. So I guess this is just sort of a logical step on that sure. concept. I mean, that Ben, this is not a new idea. I mean, there are buildings no. in the city of Toronto that are, are co-owned or they're called co-ops, but you actually purchase right. them. You own them. You're, you're building equity. Um, unlike a co-op where you're a tenant or a renter, although you have a vote right. and you have control over your unit. There are, this model has existed. There are, there are lenders who specifically lend on these kinds of models. Now, not all lenders like the notion of co-ownership. They think it's complicated and what happens if it dissolves and is it increasing my risk? We've got lots of work to do when it comes to our lending institutions and this model. But the model itself is not new. Tell me about who you're seeing, I guess. Like who, who, who is, yeah. I, I suppose, just by how you've described it, it, it it's a broad spectrum. But uh, who are you seeing coming to you with uh, interested in, in this sort of approach? Well, it, it is true it's a broad spectrum because, you know, the pandemic has shown us a few things that I think we already knew was uh, bubbling to the, the surface as a problem. Our senior care. Um, where there were people who weren't getting the kind of care that they needed during the pandemic, for example. There are people who do not want to go into institutionalized care. So seniors are approaching me. Let's group together. If we have to hire one caregiver, we can afford that. What happens if, you know, we can pool our pensions if we have them. We can support ourselves through our older age. So I'm getting approached by seniors. I'm getting approached by young families and by millennials who are, as you said earlier as well, priced out of this market because on their own, with their incomes and with what they've been able to accumulate for a down payment isn't enough given that we need 20% down and the average home is over $800,000 in Toronto. Really, I believe it's over a million as someone who's out there buying, trying to buy houses. You know, so you need $200,000 before you can even start looking at a home in the city of Toronto. Um Absolutely. I think, I mean, I have friends in Toronto, obviously, who, uh, yeah, I, I gather the Toronto housing market is, uh, and I'm in Victoria, which is which is uniquely mm-hmm. for a small city, uniquely um, high-priced, and, and Vancouver, mm-hmm. you know, obviously, mm-hmm. another one. Uh, so what, when you see people, I mean, who do you, what kind of, if someone out there was thinking of this might be a good idea for them, what would yeah. you, what advice do you give people? You know, the first thing I do is you've got to make sure that you're the right kind of person for co-ownership. It's not as easy and as straightforward as, as you said, a romantic partner. Although even with our romantic partners or our life partners, you know, separation, divorce 
it can get complicated. So owning, owning property can become complicated for everybody. So what I like to do with people is I like to really sit down with people and talk through the idea of co-ownership. What does it mean to live in community? What does it mean to make something more intentional? And the getting in is really easy, right? It's romantic. You get in. It's exciting. Everyone's got a new house. It's the getting out that can be really difficult. Because if you've got one party that needs to leave and one party that wants to stay, there's the buyout. How do you establish value? How, do you, how much time do you have to figure it out? So my approach is to sit down with the group and work through all the not-so-nice, not-so-fun, not-so-exciting pieces of co-ownership <laughs> before we even consider looking at property. So that means the legal stuff, the financial stuff, the emotional stuff. And then the last thing you do is you look for bricks and mortar. So really a prenuptial, <laughs> prenuptial to some extent. It is kind uh, of like I mean, a prenup agreement. What it does, though, is it makes people think, you know, conflict may arise. Differences may arise. You've got a structure that you have to maintain. Who's responsible for what? How do things get agreed upon? My uncle's a plumber. Does he get to do all the plumbing in the house or do we get three quotes? And do we decide on making sure that our roof is inspected once a year? How do we decide if we want to put a deck on the back? Who pays for that? There are a lot of things that you have to understand about the dynamic. Once you understand the dynamic and you're committed to it, then we move to the next step. Um, one of the things I say to people often is, if you're a person who has no ability to compromise, if everything has to be your way, which, you know, that, that, that's a personality trait, you may not be the right kind of personality for co-ownership, right? Because you may not always get your way. And the larger co-ownership communities, like the large, you know, um, communities in the United States where there's 30 units, you know, it's a little easier to kind of like, oh, well, there 29 people wanted the purple doors and I didn't get it. But when you're in a smaller group, like three couples or three individuals or six seniors, it's a little more difficult to kind of give up on something because it's a smaller group. So you really have to tease apart. What do we do when we come up against an impasse? Um, I do a lot of coaching with people before I even get them to, like I said, go out and look at the properties of what, you know, what might be available. You're right. Because thinking about it, of course, when you are a homeowner, although it is a lot of responsibility, you do make a lot of uh, arbitrary decisions. I mean, you make the decisions Mm -hmm. yourself, right? You know, like, who am I going to hire? What am I going to do? Am I going to let that furnace go for another year? Am I going to replace it? You decide and you pay. And obviously you pay the consequences if it all goes wrong. But if you co-own and you're the one who said, ah, let's not fix the washer this year, and then it leaks. <laughs> right. <laughs> I spo- right. I can see where there'd be grounds for uh, grounds for conflict. Uh, we're going to take just, a, we're going to jump away for a moment. I would really want to ask you just about people, and you've already talked about it a bit, but just some of the warning signs that you give people too about 
those who look at, you know, maybe jumping into this and, and, and just what the right fit would be and, and what kind of houses they're looking at. Cause I was really curious as to what sort of places they wind up in when it comes to the brick and mortar. Uh, we'll be back with, uh, with Leslie Gaynor, real estate agent with Forest Hill Downtown Real Estate in Toronto and owner of GoCo Solutions, a company dedicated to helping people get into co-owned homes. We're looking at solutions to help people get on the property ladder these days when it is so tough to climb up onto that first rung specifically. We'll be back. I'm speaking with Leslie Gaynor, a real estate agent with Forest Hill Downtown Real Estate in Toronto and owner of GoCo Solutions, a company dedicated to helping people get into co-owned homes. We're talking about co-ownership as a potential way of getting into the property market, of owning your own home if it's difficult to do so by yourself or just as a couple. Uh, we've been talking about the, the many different permutations there are to co-owning. It comes in all shapes and sizes, as Leslie was explaining, from seniors living together to different couples living in different places, you know, different units to people sharing a same space. It goes right across the spectrum. I was thinking about how difficult it is to house hunt in this market because it's so fast and, and how challenging it might be if you had to negotiate with three or four or five other people to try and decide whether that was the right place to move into. <laughs> yeah, well, it does get to be a bit challenging. But by being really prepared and by being out and looking at something that comes on the market really quickly, you can do it. You just have to, again, be aligned. It's the alignment that's really important. You do the pre-work so that people are really clear. It's like, I need this. I need a backyard. I need parking. I need to be in this vicinity. And you work that all out. You don't go out before you know all of those pieces. And that way, I, I mean, that makes perfect sense. I guess everyone should do, do that when buying a home because even exactly. as, even with your, yeah, that, so, sometimes <laughs> run into problems. You know, I, you know, I, I've never cared that much for a great shower, but you know, a great shower can be a, a deal breaker for a lot of people. It, it um, sure can. <laughs> you know, the thing that we do at GoCo is, is you're right, is, is in fact what people should do before they buy property with anybody. Because we talk about all of the problems that could come up. And the thing we talk about in relationship to divorce, death, I mean, all of the things we try not to talk about, we actually talk about them. We actually put plans into place so that we're already prepared in case that happens. The exit strategy is essential. It sounds like a lot of work, Leslie, compared to to selling a just selling a home, for instance, or <laughs> or you know, it sounds like a lot. Of, why why do you do it? What uh, you must get some, you must get some joy out of seeing it work. I do, I absolutely do, because I actually fundamentally believe that we've got to move away from this notion of individualism, this notion of big homes being the right way to move forward. We have a really serious problem on our hands. I am not addressing affordable housing because I'm buying the expensive houses, but I'm dividing up that expense by more than one person or two people or three people. So I'm making it accessible or more accessible. I'm not making it more affordable because I still am competing in this market. We need to look at density. We need to look at gentle density as a good thing for our neighborhoods. Um, we don't need the 73-story buildings to take over everything. There are other ways. There are medium-sized buildings. There are the, you know, as you said in Montreal, the three-story, three-unit with the back staircase where everyone can hang out in the summer. We need to start thinking seriously about what we build and why we build what we build. It's not just about building supply either. We have homes that are well 
equipped to be more than one single family home. The laneway suites are brilliant ideas. Garden suites are great ideas. We need to be creative. So um, I do it because I fundamentally believe it's a healthier way to live. I believe that it is better for people to live in community. I don't want to share a kitchen with you. I don't want to share a bathroom with you. I want my private space. But I do know that when someone knocks on my door and is like, hey, I'm going to the corner store, I'm going to grab some milk, do you need anything? Or I haven't seen you in a couple of days, are you feeling okay? Or a senior who just needs somebody to help them shovel their driveway so that they can stay independent in their home longer. Or, you know, a family that struggles with daycare expenses with another family who shares the daycare expenses. There's, there's tons of issues that we can address through co-ownership that isn't just about your home. It can also be about your life and your lifestyle and what it affords you. And it's not just living in, you know, in a, in a fishbowl in the sky, so to speak, where mm-hmm. you create these cities just full of massive towers and leave it at that, right? This is about, about, because I remember growing up in that house, and of course, we had a laneway and we had a backyard and mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't like my friends who lived in their own bigger houses. Of course, I'd always envied my friends in their own bigger houses, <laughs> but that aside, you know, there was right. a lot of community there because you did, you know, all that the whole block was three floors, these same triplexes. Um, and right. it did create a back lane of community and so forth. And and, and you're right. We, we do have to be imaginative about density now because uh, it's obviously needed. It is. And I also think we have to think about our environment. I mean, the shared economy is not, un, it's not un, unfamiliar to people. You know, Uber, Airbnb, like all of this came out of this, you know, I've got bedrooms here that no one's sleeping in. Let's use our resources. Um, let's figure out creative ways to make our end of life, our, you know, the other, <laughs> the other side, you know, enjoyable and pleasant. Um, I want to be part of a community when I'm a senior. I don't, I don't want to lose out on the multi, the, the, the impact that multi-generational living has. Right. I want to be surrounded by little kids. I want, you know, so I just I just think we need to move away from this notion of single nuclear families living in in these, you know, sort of homes that keep them from even knowing their neighbors sometimes. Um, So it's more than just co-ownership for me. It's, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. I've just run out of time, Thank but what you. a fascinating conversation. Thanks so much for sharing both okay. a lot of information right. about co-ownership and the motivation. Have a great night. Yeah, thanks. Well, imagine being able to watch a new planet be born. How much could we learn? Well, scientists have observed a planet about nine times the mass of Jupiter, apparently at a remarkably early stage of formation. And I'm going to quote here because I don't know this as fact, and we will talk to someone in just a second who does. It is a gas giant orbiting unusually far from its young host star. Gas giants are planets like our solar system's largest ones, Jupiter and Saturn, composed mostly of hydrogen and helium with swirling gases surrounding a smaller solid core. And evidence suggests, and we will ask about this, it is the earliest stage of formation ever observed for a gas giant. We will ask the man who's responsible for that very quote, now astrophysicist Thane Curry of the Subaru Telescope and the NASA Ames Research Center and lead author of the study on this new forming planet in nature astronomy. Thank you so much for your time tonight, Thane Curry. Well, thank you very much for uh, inviting me on. 
This is fascinating. I'm sure it's very complicated in many ways, but simply we are watching a new planet being born, I understand. Exactly. So you know, we've identified about 5,000 extrasolar planets around nearby stars in the last quarter century. And most of these are in solar system scales. And most of those planets, we think, um, were probably formed in a similar manner which these solar system planets were formed. You know, so the Earth and um, Mars and such, you know, they were formed by the uh, gradual growth of dust to pebbles to then boulder-sized objects, and they uh, collide together you know, to form things you know, the size of the Earth and, and, and the terrestrial planets. The gas giants typically take a, an additional step where they grow large enough, massive enough, that they create a gaseous envelope around them, around that core. So that's called core accretion. We think that we have found, uh, we've been able to peer into the earliest stages of planet formation around the star called AB Auriga. And in fact, it looks like this particular protoplanet uh, might uh, have been formed in a way entirely different than any of the planets in our own solar system. Yeah, tell me about that, because that is one of the interesting things about the articles that have been put up, including one on the Subaru Telescope website, uh, that it may call into question, or at least not call into question, but allow us to advance our understanding of how these planets are formed. Well, I think it shows that, you know, there's more than one way to cook an egg, as I've said, said in other contexts, <laughs> right? Indeed. Yeah, so so this, this, this protoplanet is bizarre, you know, so... You know, the distance between the sun and um, Neptune is about 30 times the distance from the sun to Earth. You know, so 30 AU, as, as we say in astronomy. Uh, this particular protoplanet, uh, this thing that we identify as a protoplanet, is three times the distance between the sun and Neptune. Wow. You know, the um, Jupiter is 11 times, the, roughly 11 times the size of Earth. You could fit over a thousand Earths inside of a Jupiter. For, the, you know, for this for this protoplanet, we think that we could fit 27,000 Earths inside of it. So it's a really bizarre thing that really has no frame of reference in our own solar system. And if you look at other aspects of the images that we've collected with the Subaru Telescope and the Hubble Space Telescope, it really suggests that there may be an entirely different physics responsible for forming this planet rather than um, as, as opposed to the other planets that we know about in our own solar system. Because we don't actually have that many examples of watching planets being born, I gather. Right. So we've tried to look for, for direct images of protoplanets, the so planets that are still in their, their stages of assembly, still growing. We try to do that um, depending on who you talk to, sometimes somewhere between about 10 or 15 years now. This is only the second example we have thus far of a, of a direct image of a system with protoplanets. The other one that we have is around a more of a normal system. You know, so those are two protoplanets around a star, roughly comparable in mass to the sun, where the planets are orbiting at roughly, you know, the distance between the sun and Uranus or the sun and Neptune. So that, that we kind of sort of wrap our heads around that one. And they've cleared out, you know, this cavity of gas and dust. So it, it, that kind of comports to our, our sort of um, uh, canonical model for how gas giant planets work. This thing is entirely different. Again, as you mentioned, it is absolutely massive, and it's a very long way from its from its star. I mean, how do you continue then to watch it evolve? What happens now? You have to have a lot of patience. So, to give you some context, <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Yeah. We, we've we've collected. You know, most astronomers when they try to to directly image a planet around a star, they do a couple things. You know, they so they target a lot of stars. Maybe they find a point nearby. 
and then they have to demonstrate that it act, that point is actually not a background star. And then they try to get more information about it at a range of wavelengths to be able to figure out what kind of atmosphere it has. Um, in that process, you know, typically that can take like a year or two years or so. Uh, we had to, we collected data over 13 years worth for this system because it's so far away from its star. It's moving very, very slowly. So you have to be really patient to be able to identify you know, evidence that is actually orbiting. And to make matters worse, it's embedded in a disk which has a lot of strange structure. It has a lot of spiral arms, almost looks like a galaxy in a way. Wow. And so it actually turns out it's really, really difficult for those, these types of systems uh, for trying to look for protoplanets embedded in disks to make sure that you're not seeing some weird structure in the disk that is not moving. Okay, so we had to be really patient. And in the future, now that we've identified this, you know, we, we're on a roll, right? So now we can look at it at different wavelengths. Uh, we can look, look even closer to the star, maybe see there are other planets. We can even possibly look uh, with the James Webb Space Telescope in the future. Right, of course, which was just launched. Um, uh, you you did find this. I mean, the the, the process of of watching this did start a while back, right back in in, in the early two thousands. Yeah. So so the first data for Abiariga from the Hubble Space Telescope goes back to nineteen ninety nine. The wow. first data set where we have a detection of this uh, this thing that we 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 think is a protoplanet is from two thousand seven. Um, but I only actually I started on this work in two thousand sixteen. This paper has taken five years to write. Um, it's, been, it's been one where I actually went from being an, a skeptic of that, that, that this, what we're seeing has anything to do with the planet to essentially to a believer as evidence accumulated. And we became sort of forced into, a, into the conclusion that the evidence supports interpreting this as a protoplanet instead of something else. What is it like? <laughs> To have that eureka moment, then I mean, I don't imagine it was a maybe it was a, a long forming eureka moment, but it must be it must be fairly life changing to think you've discovered something like this all of a sudden in the course of your work. Well, it's it's, it's special, I think, you know, to to know that there's something that you know about the universe, you know, there's something really big and wonderful and bizarre about the universe that nobody else knows. That that's your in a sense that's your secret, and you have to sort of like struggle between. You know, wanting to tell the whole world about it as soon as you know about it, but also, you know, having scientific rigor and, and checking all the boxes, making sure that you're dotting your I's and crossing your T's and you've done all the analysis that you need to do. You know, to be your own, your own sort of referee, your own, or own um, um, doubter in that, in that way. And that's sort of healthy. And so that sort of tension between, you know, having the excitement of, of, of discovering something, wanting to tell everybody, but also tr having to, show restraint that that uh, uh it takes some practice to, to 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 find the right balance between those two extremes um so it took you five years to have you embarked on on the follow-up to this paper already is it all that is that already in the works or are you waiting now so there is a second paper that's that's under review now that explains oh, wow. some of the techniques that we actually use uh to be able to um uh, to be able to interpret this system as I said, this is extremely difficult because you have um, you're trying to determine that this this point of light that you see, this blob that you see, is a protoplanet and not a piece of the disk. And it actually turns out we need a couple of, of new tools in our arsenal to be able to really um, tell the difference. I mean, one is that we need 
dedicated planet imaging instruments. And so we have one on the Subaru telescope called Skuxeo, which is basically the Subaru chronographic extreme adaptive optics system. It's an adaptive optics system that corrects for blurring of the atmosphere 2,000 times a second on the best site on the planet for imaging other, other planetary systems. But even then, we had to develop new tools. And so one of these is, is this very special, complex um, image processing or analysis tool that the second author on this paper, uh, who's just a PhD student defending his thesis on Monday, uh, developed. <laughs> yeah. That, that's that's quite the um, so he has to defend his PhD on Monday as well. Um, yes. <laughs> that's remarkable. I, if, 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 I've, I mean, I've been to, to Hawaii Big Island. It is and past where it is. It is remarkable how you know it's remarkable that spot. Uh, if anyone ever gets a chance to go, um, I, I guess then the question is, what should we expect next? When should we expect more information uh, about about this new planet? So I, th- I think what, what, you, what you would expect to see are a couple of things. One is uh, a, you know, su- you know, successor papers trying to understand this protoplanet in a little bit more detail. So looking at different wavelengths. And so we can actually s- start to figure out whether or not this planet is still growing, is, whether it's still creating uh, material or whether you know, it's sort of stalled at, at, its, at its sort of early, early stage. And exactly how fast is, is it growing? Um, so that's something that we might try to investigate. The other thing is that, you know, this, you know, from, um, from most planet formation theories, uh, this is a, it, this is a strange, you know, this is a strange object. Um, it's, it would seem like this is a difficult planet to form, yet it did. But what about planets on solar system scales? And so we might want to look a little bit closer to the star to be able to, to look for those. But the other thing I'm really excited about is that it spurs new um, develop new research subfields. You know, so I've already gotten, you know, had exchanges with theorists who are like trying to understand um, what we are seeing in different um, iterations or different, di- different modifications to even the standard planet formation models. And so that's really exciting to, to see how, you know, it, you have a discovery then that, that spurs other people to develop, to develop their own research and make their own discoveries. It's always fascinating how much we've learned in in quite a short period of time about about these things, given a lot of factors. But thank you so much. I look forward to uh, to an update, uh, Thane Curry. Absolutely, yeah. Is this is a lot of um, this was a, a lot of fun to do, and I think it really provides you know a context for our own you know for our own solar system, and just shows that you know the the, you, the solar system is one of many possible outcomes. And, um, you know, the way in which planets are formed can be widely varied. The Earth is just a small part on the scene. Uh, I'm feeling small right right now. Thanks so much, Thane Curry. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you very much. I'm not the biggest fan of golf on TV. I used to watch it with my grandmother years and years ago, so it always reminds me of that. I will watch the big tournaments, and I will watch a comeback. So, of course, today I had it on. Because as comebacks go, this is a pretty big one. Only 14 months after a rollover crash that left him with such severe injuries, there were fears he would lose his leg. Tiger Woods stepped back onto golf's greatest stage today. 25 years after he won his first Masters, he was back in Augusta, Georgia. Now 46, a legacy of professional success and personal trials in his wake. He still transcends the sport in so many ways. Surgically rebuilt leg and all, he stands tall on the golf course. 
He still lights up the crowd, of course. There were tons of people there. They were going to be there anyway, but they were cheering for him, obviously. Here's the reaction when he nearly had a hole-in-one on the par 3 sixth. Little cut, six out. Tiger. This one needs to cut to get on the proper level. Oh, Tiger wins. Made it. What a shot from Tiger. Hey, guys. The game's there. <laughs> yeah on the sixth uh looking good so after shooting a pretty respectable one under par 71 wood says he's carefully managed his rehab so he could make it to the masters the whole idea was to keep pushing but keep recovering and you know that's the hard part is you know each and every night to recover um and i've been doing that uh, my, my team has been incredible mm-hmm. uh getting me ready and I figured once adrenaline kicks in and we get fired up and I get into my, my little world, um, I should be able to handle business. But it is, does beg this question. He's 47. He's got young kids. He's really succeeded in doing everything anyone, any, anything anyone would ever hope to do in golf, more or less. He hasn't, doesn't have the record for, uh, for majors. But still, I mean, he's, he, his legacy is cemented. He's hurt himself. He's limping. Why would he go back? Why would he make a comeback now and risk perhaps not even being at his best this time around? Well, joining me now to discuss that from Toronto is Jason Logan. He's the editor of Score Golf and a contributor to the Toronto Star Sports section. Jason, thank you for your time tonight. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ben. I guess just as a golf fan, pure and simple, what is it like to see Tiger Woods walk back onto the biggest stage in golf? It's it's awesome. Um, I think golf fans are just over the moon um, about Tiger Woods returning this week. Um, the Masters is always the most anticipated tournament on the schedule. There's such familiarity with Augusta National, whether you've been there or you haven't been there. If you're a golf fan, you, you know all of its holes and you kind of know what to look for. But then to have, you know, Tiger Woods, a five-time champion, come back this week when 14 months ago, you know, when, when his smashed-up car is at the bottom of a ditch and he's left for dead and he very nearly lost his leg, um, it's remarkable that he's doing this. Um, it shows his resolve. It shows his work ethic. It shows his stubbornness. Um, just shows how much he loves this tournament too. He's willing to deal with whatever pain he's having to deal with just to get it, to get back out there and try to win green jacket number six. I was going to say that that was one of those issues. I mean, he was very badly hurt. I mean, he's had injuries in the past. He really hasn't played that much in the last 15 years. Uh, he's had injuries in the past, but this was something very different. What happened to him in that, in that rollover? Um, how did he look today considering? Well, there's obvious signs that he's not fully healthy. Um, he's certainly playing on a compromised leg. Um, you can tell, He's not really going at the ball as aggressively as he might have before. Um, it's funny. I was actually speaking to Adam Hadwin for a different story this morning, and we were talking about it. And, you know, Adam said the same. You can tell he's just not able to, ro- to load onto his right leg. Um, but he's also playing a very conservative style at Augusta. You know, he knows this course so well. Uh, I think he feels confident that he can still score here without dominating it with power as he did 25 years ago when he walloped the field by 12 shots. You know, there was one time, I think on the 14th hole where he snapped, took his drive and you could hear him say, come on leg. Like he was, he was frustrated um, by his lack of drive off that backside. So it's definitely uh, an issue. Um, But, you know, he's the most 
mentally strong golfer or athlete I think we've ever seen. So it's definitely a case of mind over matter for him out there as he as he tries to walk 18 holes for four consecutive days. Jason, it's hard to imagine it's been 25 years since that first Masters win. I mean, he's now ranked 973rd in the world. He hasn't played much, obviously. Um, but he still captures the imagination, not only of the golf world, but he still captures the sports world's imagination. Why do you think he's been able to stay such a central figure in sport period over all this time? Yeah, I don't, I don't think we've, I certainly in my lifetime, I, we haven't seen an athlete that moves the needle like him. And as, and as you alluded to, you know, he transcends golf. He transcends sports. Um, it's part of the reason why you and I are having this conversation. Um, I think it's just a matter of he's always been chasing history. From the time he turned professional, coming off three straight U.S. amateur wins, which followed three, straight, three straight U.S. junior amateur wins, something that had never been done in the history of golf. Um, you know, he was LeBron James before LeBron James. There was so much hype about him, particularly because he was of African-American heritage and he was, you know, not necessarily breaking ground, but we knew from a from start that he was going to do special things in golf. And we kind of hoped that he would inspire more and grow the game. Not sure that's completely happened, but maybe he's had some small role in it. And so we've just been watching him chase history for the last 25 years. We've been watching him chase Jack Nicklaus's majors record. We've been watching him chase Sam Snead's PJ Tour wins record, which he tied a couple of years ago. And then added to that, you know, the flair with which he plays, the dominance, the power, you know, the, the grittiness, the guts, the um, athleticism, just everything about him. It's, it's hard to turn away. Uh, when he's out there, especially if he's playing well. And I know he has his detractors because of some of the things he's done, some of the things he's brought upon himself. But when he's out there on the golf course, it's very difficult not to be lured by what he's doing. Watching him today, it struck me that he was taking a bit of a chance here, coming back this way, um, stepping out onto the biggest stage, putting it all on the line again. And it's it's remarkable that he would... You know, sometimes it's easy to take a legacy and walk away with it. And in his case, he doesn't seem to be satisfied with resting on the past. No, not at all. Um, I think that speaks to his competitiveness. But also, it seems to me that, you know, outside of being a dad and contending in golf tournaments, nothing makes Tiger Woods happier than rehabilitating something, right? Whether that's a golf swing that he's changed three, four or five times over the course of his career with several different coaches, whether that's body parts, which he's had to do with his knee and his back and now his leg and his ankle and neck and all kinds of things, you know, or his image. Um, it just always seems like Tiger Woods needs to be working on something. And in some sort of weird way, um, I just think he's, he's relished yet another opportunity to fight back from something and prove a lot of people wrong. That's what he's done in his whole career. When we come back, uh, you wrote a very interesting article recently called Tiger Woods is playing the Masters. You thought he wouldn't. Um, and it really looks into how he's, as much as he's well-known, Tiger Woods has always been a bit of an enigma. He likes to play his cards close to his, to his vest, so to speak. And we'll get to that after this.
I'm back with Jason Logan. He's the editor of Score Golf and contributor to the Toronto Stars sports section. We're talking about Tiger Woods playing the Masters, a, a truly remarkable comeback. Uh, just a few years after he was involved in a very serious car accident, nearly lost part of his leg, and he's back out there playing again today and playing quite decently. Um, Jason, you, you did write that really interesting article about how he was sort of teasing. He's not one just to say, yeah, I'm playing the Masters. I'll see you there in a few months. He, he, he can be quite enigmatic. Where, what do you think that's down to? Because it seems quite different from most other athletes and most other golfers. No, I think it probably comes down to the fact that he's been in the public eye for so long. Um, this is a guy who, what, at two years old, he was on TV, <laughs> you know, putting, trying to make a putt. And, um, you know, he's, you know, he's part of his training growing up from his, his father, who was a Green Beret, was as much mental as it was physical. And he's just a guy who's always, always, always wanted to control the narrative. Um, you know, he, um, he's always dodged questions that he didn't really find to his liking, or he'll just spit out some cliche. Um, a little bit here later in his career, um, he's been a little bit more forthcoming. But when I saw him being interviewed, um, either at the, the father-son championship that he played, or at the tournament in the Bahamas that he puts on, or, or at the tournament in Los Angeles that he hosts, and he was asked about his comeback, and he was asked specifically by Jim Nance about playing in the Masters. And I just didn't buy what he was selling. He just seemed to want to downplay it. And just knowing who Tiger Woods is and, and what's in his DNA, he just knew he was going to battle back and make this heroic comeback. Um, you know, and I think in his mind, he probably had this date circled on his calendar um, as soon as he started his recovery. And this is where he's always felt more comfortable, most comfortable playing golf um, because of the golf course, but also just because of the makeup of this tournament. It's a smaller field event. Um, it's very controlled as far as the fans and the media go. So he can kind of get out there and do his thing. And yeah, it's just... That's been Tiger Woods in a nutshell. You know, he's this fascinating athlete, but also quite vexing in that he's never really let anybody in. And oftentimes he's kind of been the ultimate con man. And um, to the article to which you alluded, I just didn't buy it when he said that he didn't know when he was going to come back. One thing you do notice, though, is that he just he does suck up a lot of oxygen when he's there the rest of the field seems to disappear a little bit. And that's true of many sports, right? There's many sports where a dominant athlete really takes up a lot of room to the detriment of some of the others, but particularly in an individual sport like golf. Um, what impact does that have on the sport generally? Is it, is it detrimental or is it still a good thing? I think if you ask every single player who's teeing it up in the Masters this week, they'll say it's been a great thing. And the reason for that is, they've made a lot of money because of Tiger Woods. Um, you know, Tiger Woods has helped increase purses at PJ tour events and major championships to astronomical amounts. And these guys have said time and time again, that they're thankful for everything that he's done. Um, you know, it's interesting that this generation of players, many of them grew up idolizing Tiger Woods. They grew up watching every single tournament that he played now they're out there with him um, for a long time. They didn't get to experience um, the real Tiger Woods. And then they did 
2018 and 19 when he won the tour championship and then the masters remarkably in 2019. Um, but I still think that this generation of players, they're, they're able to get out there and do their own thing. They're used to all the media attention that he's brought to the sport. They, they live in a social media world. Eyes are upon them at every single stop. Um, Tiger Woods has certainly drawn a lot of attention this week, but I think they're, they're fine with that. And, you know, I think they realize that as good as he's been throughout his career, I mean, it would be, he's a real, real long shot to actually win this thing. And so his competitors are just going out and they're doing their thing. Um, they do see him on the first stage of leaderboard on Sunday, might make a few of them nervous, um, but they're able to go out there and just play their own game. Sort of unlike the generation Tiger grew up playing against who were always, always intimidated and oftentimes kind of wilted in his presence. It's hard to imagine he's only 46. I know that's relatively old if he wins a, <laughs> wins a, wins a major because uh, he would have been one of the older golfers to do so. But it's hard to imagine that he's just 46. It, it feels like there's still quite a bit of road ahead for Tiger Woods. I think we will see him sparingly. Um, he can pick and choose when he wants to play, where he wants to play. He stated that um, when he was asked about his comeback, like what does the future look like for you? And, you know, a future for Tiger Woods is maybe it's playing six or seven events a year, um, handpicking the major championships and a few other tournaments that he likes to play either because he likes the golf course or, to pay homage to somebody like Jack Nicholas or, or Arnold, or Arnold Palmer. Um, but yeah, he's, he's never going to be back playing 20 events a year. He's, he's going to spend most of his time with his kids being a dad. Um, his son, Charlie is obviously quite an uh, accomplished young golfer. He loves to take his daughter to soccer practice. He talks about that all the time. So we'll see him here and there, but we're never going to see him like we used to. And that's fine. I mean, 15 majors and 82 PGA Tour victories so far. It's a pretty darn good record. I'm sure he'd love to add to it, but I don't think he's going to do anything that might sacrifice his body further or do anything that will sacrifice time away from his children. Jason, you're a sports fan all around. How, how fortunate have we been considering the bumps along the road, no pun intended for, for, for Tiger Woods? How privileged just as a sports fan has it been to be able to watch him play over the last quarter century? Yeah. I mean, I think back to some of the things that he's done, um, you know, the, the chip in at 16 at the masters in 2005. And, you know, you remember that, that Nike logo just pausing there in time and then just the ball falling into the hole and some of the ways he's dominated tournaments, I think back to winning an open championship, hitting just one driver. The entire week because he knew the importance of keeping the ball out of the pot bunkers on the links courses in Scotland. I mean, that's something that had never been done before. He had one driver on the first day and hit irons off the tee. The rest of the tournament was completely satisfied to have more yardage into holes than his playing competitors and still won the tournament. Um, I don't know that we've seen somebody in, and I say this as a, a 44-year-old man myself who didn't get to watch a lot of Jack Nicholas, but his combination of physical ability, but also golf IQ, 
and just his mental fortitude. Uh, it's been amazing to watch, and, and I've loved seeing him, seeing him win majors just by, you know, completely dominating a golf course physically, but then also win majors by just being so smart and just picking the golf course apart and just willing to do things that his competitors weren't. Jason Logan, thank you so much for your time. I look forward to your writing over the rest of this weekend. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me. 